so this week we're going to be moving on from where was the Old Testament in the Old Testament, where was the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and um, what's the difference between His work in the Old Testament from His work in the New Testament. And we're moving on now to a conversation about how the Holy Spirit manifests Himself. In other words, what is the work that He is doing, not just 2,000 years ago in the early church, but still the work that lingers today in our modern age. That's kind of the discussion we're going to be having for the next several weeks, which will include um, some discussion, probably a lot of discussion, about spiritual gifts, what they are, uh, etc., etc. We'll get that to that later. But we need to lay a foundation here, though, because nothing is worth anything without laying a foundation in our hearts, in our theology. And I don't, you don't need to turn here because you probably are familiar with this. 1 Corinthians 13, right? Uh, what's, do you know what 1 Corinthians 13 is? The love chapter. Do you know where the love chapter occurs in the book of 1 Corinthians? What's the conversation at hand when he slaps this chapter right there in verse 13? Do you know what he's been talking about? I'm not saying you go ahead and read the book of 1 Corinthians real quick. I just want to know if you know. Gifts of the Spirit. Gifts of the Spirit. Or various manifestations of the Spirit through the people of God. He's talking about exactly the conversation we're going to be having over the next several weeks. And just the first couple of verses here say in 1 Corinthians 13, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. So in this conversation, we need to lay a foundation. Paul takes a reprieve in the midst of talking about how the people are supposed to work in the power of the Spirit by talking about, hey, wait, let's remember here for a second, none of this is worth anything if love is not in the midst of it, in the middle of it. So we're going to start there. I'm going to one-up Paul and start with it rather than get in the middle with it. I'm just kidding on the whole one-upping Paul thing. But we want to talk about this. The first thing I want to talk to you about that the Holy Spirit does is He causes us to love Jesus. That's one of the most important things that the Holy Spirit does in our New Testament church era, is that He empowers us to love Jesus. And this is very important even to our sanctification because many of us, we talked this past Sunday on the light burden of Jesus Christ. Many of us are walking around with a heavy burden because In our attempts to be holy as I am holy, we are trying to stop being transgressors because we just don't want to be a transgressor. It's wrong to be a transgressor. Sin is not supposed to be part of our life, so we need to stop being transgressors. We need to stop being sinners. I can't be a sinner anymore. I can't be a transgressor anymore. So the conviction of sin and all these things, it all revolves around... Stop sinning. Stop being a transgressor. It's not fitting for the disciple of Christ to be a transgressor. When that is the heavy burden that Christ came to relieve us of, that mindset. 
the Spirit gives us an alternative. Because in John chapter 16, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It all, the New Testament theology behind following Jesus starts with and ends with loving Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to be talking about how the Holy Spirit empowers us to love Jesus. Look at John chapter 5 with me real quick. And before we start reading these verses, I'd like to pray. Wait, not John chapter 5. That's not the right passage. Oh, that's annoying when I do that. Maybe it's 1 John. Let's see here. 1 John 5, maybe. Thirty-nine to forty-three. Nope, it doesn't have that many. What? Well, I wrote it down so that I wouldn't. Here, let's see. John five. Wait, wait, wait. It is John five thirty-nine. I was in the wrong chapter the first time. John five thirty-nine through forty-three. But before we start reading this together, let's pray. Lord, give us wisdom as we seek. Things that are higher than us, thing, as we seek the things that we cannot do ourselves. Lord, as we study the Holy Spirit, this one who has your mind and can give us your mind, Lord, I pray that you would help us to humble ourselves and to stop trying to carry these burdens that are not ours to bear ourselves because this is the job of the Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in a humble reliance on Him rather than just relying on ourselves for everything the willpower and transcending ourselves so that somehow we can achieve something. I just pray you would help us to humble ourselves and rely on the one who is is faithful. Give us wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 5, 39, we're going to read through the end, well, through through 43. We're going to read here. We read here. You search the scriptures. Jesus is talking um, primarily to Pharisees. Uh, but to whoever is listening, really, you search the Scriptures um, because you think that in them you have eternal life. Now, that's an interesting statement to say. I mean, isn't that how we learn about eternal life in the Scriptures? But then he follows it up and it says, and it is they that bear witness about me. So there we see a, the dichotomy um, or the juxtaposition, perhaps, between the light burden and the heavy burden. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, were telling the people, go to the law and obey all the rules so that you can stop being transgressors. But then Jesus interjects, but it's they that bear witness about me. It's supposed to draw you to me. Verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. So he's telling them, you do not have the love of God within you. Why? Because you are still trying to stop be transgressors for the sake of not being a transgressor. You don't have the love of God within you empowering you. That's your big problem, you Jews. You're not walking according to your love for God. 
You're walking according to your love for personal enrichment, self-aggrandizement, making something of yourself, self-help, essentially is what they were all doing. Yeah, in the name of God, according to the Word of God. But they were just trying to stop being transgressors so they would just stop being transgressors because it's wrong to be a transgressor. Some of them had far greater intentions. But the majority of them, it wasn't because they loved God. It's because they loved themselves and they wanted the life of covenant promise. But that's just an introduction. John chapter 16, let's go here. We see this a little bit more. Carrie, you know, we're, this is, we're following a train of thought through Scripture here. John chapter 16. In John 14, 15, that he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And, if you, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world will not receive, etc. And then in chapter 16, starting in verse 26, Jesus says, in that day, you will ask in my name. I do not say that, you will ask, that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and, have be- and believed that I came from God. I love this passage. Let me just read it again. In that day, you, we will ask in my name. Okay, Jesus taught, pray anything in my name and I'll do it. You will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Okay, so Jesus is our mediator, but he's trying to make a point here for us, okay? It's not that Jesus, you know, the Father still doesn't want to talk to us, and that he still has to talk to Jesus on our behalf, because he's perfected us in holiness. That's not the type of mediation that's long-term, okay? Because he's telling us, there's a day when you're going to ask in my name, okay, you still need to ask in my name, but it's not, because, it's not so that I can take a message to my Father because He doesn't want to interact with you personally. Why? Because, verse 27, for the Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and believed that I came from God. Salvation comes from coming to the point where you see Jesus and you love Him which is something that we can't do on our own. And we're going to get to that in a second here. Okay? And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. If there's something you want to hang on your wall this week, just write down that term, the Father Himself loves you. Because sometimes that's what we need to hear. The Father Himself loves you. That's why He wants to hear you. In the name of Jesus, because it's in His name that we can even approach the Father, but we can come boldly into the throne of grace because the Father Himself, He already loves you. He's not pointing out all your transgressions constantly throughout the day. You might be for yourself and for others, but God isn't doing that. That's not His business. Jesus did not come into the world that the world might be condemned, but that it might be saved. So what good is it if we're saved by grace, elected by the Father, but yet the Father just continues to condemn us all day long? That's not, this, that's not the New Testament mandate. That's incorrect theology. We do that to ourselves. We judge, we judge ourselves. We put ourselves down. We put other people down. We judge each other. 
God is not in that business. The more, we sanctif- the more we walk in sanctification, the less we judge each other, the less we put each other down, because we become more and more like the Father, who Himself loves us. But then there's a follow-up to that. But Father Himself loves you because you have loved Me and have believed that I have come from God. That's what the Father wants for us, that we might love Jesus and believe that Jesus came from the Father as a gift. As a gift. Not that He came on His own accord, but He came according to the will of His Father. And we must see that. And when we, when we disbelieve that God really loves me, we start tearing the Gospel apart. Because the Gospel comes from this rudimentary, elementary focus that God loves you. And so, therefore, sent His Son to die for you. I mean, is that not the most famous verse in the Bible? For God so loved the world. For God loved the world in this way that He sent His only begotten Son. So if we walk around constantly feeling defeated like God is looking down upon you, judging you, pointing out all your transgressions, we are unraveling the Gospel in our life. Because it all starts with the fact that the Father loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from God, this is what the Father wants. And this is establishing some, a very important detail in Scripture that God, the first will of God for us, okay? If there's anything that we, is required of us above all else, it's that we love Jesus and believe that God sent Him to the, to the earth for us. That's number one. I mean, it's part of our salvation, but it's also woven into the fabric of every other part of our life and theology. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 13. If you have something going for you, if you're doing any sort of good at all, but you have not, even if you burn at the stake because of Jesus, but you have not love, even that is worthless. Can you imagine that? Burning at the stake. (laughs) And then you meet the Father and He says, that was worthless. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine thinking about all the people who have burned at the stake for Jesus and thinking that some of those people did it in vain? We could never say that and point that out specifically. And even if we knew for sure who those people were, it's kind of rude to say it. <laughs> because they've, even, they've performed a sacrifice even greater than any of us have ever performed. But yet, if it's without love... God doesn't care about it. God doesn't receive it. Everything starts and ends with love. If we overlook love just because we go, oh, we got to get to the more important stuff. We got to shape up our lives. We got to do the things that are right. We got to stop doing the things that are wrong. Who, you know, okay, we'll talk about love later, but right now you got to shape up. Then we're going against the word. Our priorities are not God's priorities. We are not loving the Father. Because none of that matters if it doesn't start with love. That's the most important thing. Love Jesus. Believe that God sent Him, which is glorifying the love of the Father. Because He sent Him because of His love. 
It all starts with loving Jesus and recognizing the love of the Father. That's the beginning and ending of the gospel. Loving Jesus, recognizing the love of the Father. That's where it all revolves around. It's very simple. There's a lot of complex theology out there, but it all revolves around you love Jesus. You recognize the love of the Father in Jesus. That's where we start getting concepts of grace. That's where grace comes from. We talk about grace being the rudimentary element of our salvation, but that doesn't go back far enough because grace exists because the Father loves you and sent His Son to die for you. It starts with the love of the Father and loving Jesus. And he's te- he's, when Jesus says this, He's telling this to the disciples. And just a couple examples here. He's telling this to people like Thomas and people like Peter. We remember Thomas was being doubting Thomas, but actually Thomas gives us one of the most faithful sayings in Scripture. And in John eleven twenty six, we won't go there. But this is the story where Jesus is going to go be with Lazarus because Lazarus died and he was going to go raise him from the dead. But just prior to this, Jesus was in Jerusalem and the people were trying to kill him. The Jews were trying to kill Jesus. And the disciples said, Jesus, I know you want to go down to Bethany to go and be with Lazarus and do whatever it is you said you wanted to do. But that's really close to Jerusalem. And if you go down there and the Jews find out, they're going to come and kill us all. Let's not go down there right now, Jesus. It's not a good idea. But Jesus presses on and says, no, we're doing it anyway. And Thomas stands up and says, let's just all go down and die with him. He didn't speak it in fear necessarily, but in loyalty. We're going to go with Jesus, even if it means to death. And Peter did the same thing in John 13, 36 and 37, which I will read that one, where it says, Simon Peter said to, Jesus, said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow here afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I mean, these two people are loved Jesus. Now, they had not been given the Spirit yet, but we're going to see the explanation for this in a second here in 1 Peter. But they had Jesus. They saw Him. He washed their feet. He he trained them for years. They saw Him at work. They, They received His teaching, His service. And they loved Him because they saw Him at work and heard His teaching with their own ears. They didn't have to rely upon the words of the apostles. They were the apostles. John 15, 26 and 27 say, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with Me from the beginning. So here He's saying the Helper is going to come to you and He's going to be with you. He's going to come from the Father. He's the Spirit of truth. He's going to bear witness about Me through you and to His people that He is going to call out to, which also is prophetic of the work that the church is 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 privileged to do when we enter into the work of the Spirit. We're entering into His will, which is to reveal Jesus Christ to the world. That is His priority. 
His priority is not to make you feel good about yourself. It's not for you to have spiritual gifts that you enjoy using and manifest themselves in great and awesome ways. That's not his priority. His priority is to manifest Christ. And everything that he does in and through us is to manifest Christ to the world. And he says, and you also will bear witness of me. So they're working with the Spirit because you have been with me from the beginning. So they've been with him from the beginning. So they kind of have... An introductory, an introduction to the Spirit's work even before the Spirit comes. And now look at 1 Peter 1, 3 through 12. First Peter 1, 3 through 12. Wait. Did I first Peter? Oh, sorry. Yeah, 1, 3 through 12 say. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, stop here for a second. The apostles, the disciples, had been with Jesus. They saw Him face to face. They were ready to die for Him. They had lived with Him for years. Excuse me. And they had been through tribulation after tribulation after tribulation with Jesus and after Jesus. But they were willing to go through it all because they couldn't do anything else. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. You are the one who who has come from the Father. They knew it because they saw it with their own eyes. So they had to go through this tribulation after tribulation. There was no way out because they couldn't turn their backs on Jesus because they had seen them. They had seen Him. They had been with Him. They couldn't deny Him. It was so incredibly real to them. They couldn't say no. They couldn't turn away. But then here's where it gets to us. Because in 1 Peter, he's writing to a people who have been through trials for Jesus. Been through testing for Jesus because of the Gospel. But these people that he's writing to have never seen Jesus. They're different because they've never actually seen Him. They were not with Him while He was alive. They did not hear Him speaking with His own lips like the disciples slash apostles had. So in verse 8, we bring us both together through the Spirit. He says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of of your souls concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person of, or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that you have now been announced to through, that have been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. So this that has been preached to us, transmitted to us, it is through the power of the Spirit. And even though we have not personally seen Jesus, 
That's why it's foolishness to the perishing. Jesus hasn't been around for 2,000 years. All this, this was written 2,000 years ago. We talked about this a little on Sunday. It's ridiculous. Why are you believing some ancient tale? Jesus hasn't shown himself for thousands of years. Why do you still believe this garbage? Just because somebody else said it a long time ago. That's what the world, that's what the perishing see it as. Why do we believe it? Because the Spirit has revealed it to us. And He has allowed us to come alongside, verse 8, Though you have not seen Him, yet you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, yet you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. How can these things come from a tale that you simply choose to believe just because it sounds like a good story? We believe it because the Spirit has revealed Him to us and has brought us to love Jesus. Not just believe the stories. Not just believe the tale. I mean, that's understandable. People believe a lot of things. But we have been brought to love Jesus as though we have always been with Him. The whole, as, more importantly, as though He has been with us the whole time. As though we have been hearing these things from our own lips. As though He washed our own feet. We love Him as though we were with Him and that He was with us and that we were abiding together in harmony and in unity and in intimacy. We love Him like that. And that is only possible because of where we are in history and having never met this man we call Jesus. We've, we have no way of going back and talking to even the apostles, the first-hand account. We don't even have a way of doing that. We can read about it. We can hear preaching about it from millionth you know, accounts. So if we, be, if we love Jesus, it's a miracle initiated by the Holy Spirit. And then we walk in the Father's love. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians 2, verses 8 to 10. Say, And it's kind of funny because I've actually referenced a lot of these passages recently. But all I wasn't doing this on purpose, but these just keep coming up in this subject here. It says, None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So you see here that there are the people, even the people who saw Him crucified Him. Because they didn't believe. Even though, even though they saw Him. It was even a miracle for those who saw Him to believe. Verse 9, but as it is written, what no eye has seen and nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. So how, do you, how did the, the Corinthians did not see Jesus? But these things had been revealed to them through the Spirit. What things? What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things were revealed to these people through the Holy Spirit, all circling around the love of God expressed to us in grace through Jesus Christ. The Spirit's work 
does not simply provide a Christological confession. His revelation, if it is true and full, produces love for Christ. And Jesus says in John chapter 7, starting in verse 37, He says, the Bible says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Does that sound like a simple head belief in a tale? Does that cause rivers of living water to gush out of your innermost being just to have a logical comprehension and agreement to Facts and details? No. This is spirit transformation that must exist in His followers. The Spirit who gives us an understanding and a love for Jesus and from that gushes forth from the inner parts of man. Not the head parts of man which can control the things of the world, but the inner parts of the man that we can't really control We can't even know ourselves, the Bible says. We can't even know our own heart. But in that corridor, Jesus, through the Spirit, transforms it and gushes out living water. And even the Spirit's conviction of sin that comes from here, that is sensed here, essentially finds its roots in the transformation of our love, which flows from our innermost being. 1 John chapter 2. This is the last passage we're looking at right now, though that shouldn't be a relief. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15, says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What is the cure for the love of the world? What is the cure for transgression? Love of the Father. The love of the Father. We can stop doing the things of the world because we don't want to be a transgressor, but still love them. That's hypocrisy. Okay, you may be doing the right thing, okay, according to the law, according to the legal demands, but there's, it's worthless according to 1 Corinthians 13. It's worthless. God does not accept it because it's, there's no love. Because the love of the Father is not in you. Verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as He has taught you, abide in Him. The anointing that he's talking about is from the Spirit. And because of that anointing, because going back to verse 15, the first result of the anointing is a love for the Father. And if you have the love for the Father, then it is true that nobody needs to teach you anything. 
Because the Spirit Himself will guide you in all truth, because you love the Father, and the Father loves you. And He will see to it that you are not lacking anything. When we start lacking, when we start going off course, because our love is going off course. It's because our love is going off course. I want to read you something. This is a fantastic book called Delighting in the Trinity. Trinity seems to be a dry subject to some people, but this book goes through why it's so amazing. Um, just on the back, on the top of the back, it says, Why is God love? Because God's a trinity. Why can we be saved? Because God's a trinity. How are we able to live the Christian life? Through the trinity. And it's a fantastic book. When I'm done with it, I'll put it on the back for people to borrow. Um, but I want to read a little excerpt here that he talks about. He talks to a man called, named Thomas Chalmers. Some of you may be familiar with him. I'm going to read some of this here, but he talks about this. And I'm going to end with this, okay? Thomas Chalmers, who lived from 1780 to 1847, started out as one of those clergymen who, were, who don't really care. In fact, he was explicit in his belief that the duties of his parish in Kilimany, near St. Andrews in Scotland, really ought not take up more than one day a week. Then, aged 29, he felt dangerously ill and was confined to bed with the works of evangelicals such as William Wilberforce. When he arose, it was an, as a new man, eager to preach salvation through grace alone, and large crowds were soon descending on Kilmany to hear him. Four years later, in 1815, he moved to the Tron Church in Glasgow, and word spread through the country of, his, of this living fire in the pulpit. All the world wild about Chalmers wrote Wilberforce in his diary, and he was not exaggerating. Thousands came to hear his broad fife tones. One time, Chalmers could only get into the church through a window. He would, he would go on later to professorships at the universities of St. Andrew and Edinburgh, and would lead the formation of the Free Church of Scotland. But it was in those Glasgow years that he gave a sermon that explained what his preaching was now about, and how he, we are to walk in the Spirit. The sermon was based on 1 John 2.15, entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Our problem, he explained, is that naturally our lives are guided and controlled by a love for the world. What can we do? Resolve to do better? Try to convince ourselves that the world is not really so alluring after all? No, he said, that is altogether incompetent and ineffectual, for nobody can dispossess the heart of an old affection, but by the expulsive power of a new one. We cannot choose what we love, but always love what seems desirable to us. Thus, we will only change what we love when something proves itself to be more desirable to us than what we already love. I will then always love sin and the world until I truly sense that Christ is better. And this is what the Spirit does in us. He makes us taste and see that the Lord is good, supremely good, and thus He causes us to desire Him. He, the, love of, the God of love, so sets himself forth in characters of endearment that naught but faith, naught but understanding are wanting on your part to call forth the love of your hearts back again. It was how Chalmers wielded the sword of the Spirit. He made Christ known that hearts might be won. And he just, and that just um, perpetuates this whole subject that the work of the Spirit, the first work, that we must seek from Him is that He might give us a deep, sincere love for the Son of God and a recognition of the deep and infinitely sincere love of the Father who sent the Son for us to love. 
That's where it all starts. That's where it all ends. We don't get further than that. It all revolves around it, like a solar system. Even grace and mercy, redemption, forgiveness, all of the acts of God revolve around that. And that's where we must start in this subject about the manifestation of the Spirit. Because if we, if some of you start speaking in tongues <laughs> because of what we learn here, you know, who cares? Yeah. <laughs> but who cares if we don't first have love for Christ? If it doesn't start with a love for Christ that only the Spirit can give us, that's His first work. If you don't have His first work, then everything that follows, who cares about it? God doesn't care about it. We shouldn't care about it. If we're just in it for our own agenda, we must go back to the first works and build from there. Rather than seeing how can we better ourselves, how can we better our church? Let's gaze upon the love and the beauty of God the Father. And let us seek the Spirit that we might love the Son of God the deep, sincere affection. An affection that causes us to hate the world and long for the day when we can be shed of it. Lord, please give us this. Lord, please help us to love you because it's a miracle that we seek. We've not seen Jesus. We've not heard his lips. We haven't seen him kneeling and washing our feet and justifying sinners, hanging on the cross, rising from the dead. We haven't seen these things. May your Spirit give us sight. This is your will according to the name of Jesus. I believe that you will do this. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.